Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, committed to helping reduce the use of fossil fuels by providing geothermal home heating and cooling solutions to homeowners across the Northeast. More information at dandelionenergy.com. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Mardrigan, broadcasting from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. It's time for environmentalists to stop having a beef with us meat eaters, isn't it? If we just scaled down how much we consume, could we echo-minded carnivores have our steak and eat it too? <laughs> Join it. Thank you, Marjorie. Joining us for his take on this, the $40,000 worth of caviar tucked in the Mueller report and other headlines about food policy and food culture is Corby Kummer. He's an award-winning food writer, a senior editor at The Atlantic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy and a BPR contributor. Hello, Corby Kummer. Hey there. Hey, Corby Kummer. <clears throat> so I've been dying to get your take on the stop and shop uh, strike. It lasted about 10 days. Now they, uh, the workers have reached a deal with the company. But you sense that there was a lot of support, not just from political candidates, but just the time I live right near a stop and shop, you know, people going by tooting their horn and stuff. What'd you make of, uh, and they've gotten a, a decent deal too. What, what'd you make of this? This is a really tough one because, of course, our heart goes out to the strikers and also the effectiveness of the strike. One, I think, Saturday, they just decide, I'm going to leave those cupcakes uniced, uh, the meat uncryovac and out I go. And uh, cheese in the slicer, bread in the slicer, and it was this really effective strike. And Stop and Shops was reported to be losing $2 million a day in last week leading up to Easter and Passover. So it was a very effective time to strike, very effective strike. They were saying, stop cutting our pensions. We've been working here for years. Suddenly you're devaluing us. So how great that they did this, but. The but is supermarkets and huge retail places are under siege from Amazon and other online retailers. And what is their future? Um, and I don't know that this is a step ahead for workers at other bricks-and-mortar locations. You know, we, uh, by the way, uh, Marjorie characterized, and I think that's what I read too, as a win for the union. I mean, clearly they stuck together and they did whatever you described, left the meat in the slice or whatever that imagery was. But I have to say, as a, as a former union guy, I think the jury's still out. You know, for example, tucked in the first Globe story, on uh, uh, by uh, Katie Johnson and John Hilliard after the settlement. Just one line I thought was pretty significant. The UFCW, the Food and Commercial Workers, in a statement said the agreement also maintains time and a half pay on Sundays for current members. One of the big uh -huh. issues for them was how current members, I had three of them, uh, three of the workers who averaged about 40 years of service. They started in their teens in mm. two of the three cases on TV with me the other night. One of the big issues was how future members are treated. So it's not a two-tiered pension, two-tiered pay kind of thing. And I think the power they have going forward is in great part going to be a function of how much did what they win accrue to the benefit not just of the current members, but about future hires. And so, uh, again, I'm, if they're happy, I'm happy, but I think we have to reserve judgment about what the, uh, the outcome again, and impact is. But again, if you're in, as, as Corby says, a industry that could be dying, I mean, the, the brick-and-mortar supermarket because of all this competition, in, in, in a way, I mean, you, you, they're going to do something. I'm not, right? I'm not criticizing them in the slightest. I'm just saying, let's see how they do for people who come in the future. They are apparently paid current members much better, and they're going right. to get pay raises than their non-union counterparts. The question is, is that going to hold? 
But or I guess justice-wise, justice it's much more harmful for someone who's been there for 20 years, 25, 30 years, to have something change than for the new people. To yes, come but in. their position, and this is the position of every decent union in this country, not there are many left vis-a-vis future hires, is that not only is it bad for the future person, which who doesn't exist yet, at least mm -hmm. as a worker, it's bad for us because when that new person is underpaid, has a rotten pension, uh, crappy health care, if they have health care at all, depending on how many hours they work, it weakens the whole union. So we, who have been here for years, get weakened as well. That's what these guys okay. articulated the so other just, night on the I, show. Well, I'll shut up in one second. So yeah. my argument then that the people at the T should continue to be able to get out after 20 years then because we don't want to upset the newer workers. Forever, right, exactly. <laughs> okay. In any All case, right. uh, I, the, 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 they did stay strong. And, uh, and you know, one of the interesting things, we're going to talk to our listeners about it afterwards, is what's the impact? You know, do, current, do former customers after 10 days change their loyalties? I hope not. Are there going to be people who are pro-union types who almost never went there who well, are now well, going to Jim go for the I, first time? Go ahead. We have our eye on the future. And one of the things <laughs> that I thought was, was great was public support for unions is at a 15-year high. I know. It's uh, amazing. According to Gallupo, quoting this Johnson. And yeah. Hilliard started with 62% of Americans voicing support for unions. That's great. But I would say that the outcome of this has to be management working with the union about figuring out the future for the new union workers. So the, uh, the thing I was unclear about, having read that story, are they selling at Stop and Shop now that they've reopened $40,000 jars of caviar, <laughs> or am I confusing two stories, Corby? The union negotiated a big cut of every $40,000 jar of caviar. Can you tell us this deal. the yeah. latest? We know Paul Manafort. What did he have, like ostrich jackets or whatever? I don't know. But tell us so about the caviar. This is a would. really amusing story by Ryan Sutton, who's a funny writer and did some of the best reporting about uh, minimum wage. I mean, he really delved into the economics. But he wrote a comic item in um, Eater.com about something in the uh, tucked in, as you said, to the Mueller report. Uh, is this tale of an operative for the newly elected president of Ukraine who says to Manafort, uh, I've, I've got that big jar of black caviar, uh, which was worth 30000 to 40000 So... A Post report, a Washington Post report, suggested maybe it was coded language for money. That's what but I Ryan thought. Ryan Sutton just ran with this story and said, so what would it look like, a Mercedes worth of caviar? <laughs> and how big would that jar be? Um, and the biggest size at Petrosian, which he lives down the street from, which sells caviar retail in, in New York City, in the, like West 56th and 7th Avenue, uh, one kilogram cost $16,000, so he had trouble envisioning what it looks like. <laughs> but I know what it looks like because a, a kilogram jar has this beautiful um, etched silver fish on it. And at the opening of guest quarters, the then guest quarters on Memorial Drive, um, a friend I won't name but might be listening to this show and I, had access to these. They look like they're film reels. They're big, huge silver tins of caviar. And everybody was looking at them like, what is it? Is it jewelry? These glistening, beautiful black eggs? And she and I just decided we were going to have only caviar that night until we our eyes bugged out, <laughs> our own eyes bugged out. 
And we were so ill for the next three days that I'm not sure either of us has had caviar since. By the way, when you said newly elected, you don't mean newly elected like the comedian who was elected two days ago. You mean the guy who was newly elected in 2010, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, 2010. Right. Yeah. As in as in complete corruption that the new comedian is so hoping to combat. You know, I've had cheap caviar. I don't, there's no such thing as really... Well, there is. I've had cheap caviar. I've never had wildly expensive caviar. Can you tell the difference? Yes, I can. Um, but it, it, so so malisol means little salt. That's my favorite kind, and it's the least salty. Uh, the big stuff is glistening. It pops nicely, and it's big. You're paying for the size of it. Uh, it's also soft. Uh, there are so many ways, if you really like caviar, to have something affordable. Uh, you buy it in paste form, so it's kind of gummy and sticky, but has a really good flavor. Um, or what you what you buy is farmed caviar from the northwest coast or the Canadian coast mm. or the many places that are farming it sustainably instead of illegal beluga, which is so endangered that it's illegal to sell. And one of the things the Eater.com story by Ryan Sutton was speculating is it might have been so expensive right. because it was smuggled and contraband and illegal, which would make it even worse. Paul Manafort would never do anything like that. <laughs> never, me. no. Of course, his principles were much too high. Uh, so, Corby Kummer, um, uh, working for food stamps has become uh, more popular in recent times. This great piece from the new food economy uh, shows that it's not the, the people that are really making money here, the companies that run these programs, uh, that they are, have not gotten people jobs, that the, the programs are very expensive. Uh, and in some cases, they violated participants' civil rights uh, and been accused, at least in one case, of coerced labor. The idea is that you can't get food stamps unless you work a certain amount of time. This story is out of Wisconsin. It sounds this horrible. This was the most chilling story of exploitation of laws. And so we've been watching for years the Trump administration try to kick people off the rolls of SNAP, of food assistance, by using this work requirements for ABODs, able-bodied working um, adults. And uh, LePage in Maine tried to do this, and uh, Wisconsin, Scott, uh, Scott Walker. Walker. Walker did it successfully. So what happens? Companies come in and contract with a state to say, we'll provide job training, we'll provide job access, because now you have these requirements. And, you know, these uh, these stranded people who want their food stamps have to sign up for these services. What do these services try to do? They try to, like, turn them into endangered servants by saying, we found a job for you. It's two hours away. There's no public transport, but it's the only job you can take. And if you don't take it, uh, you're going to be kicked off the rolls and you won't get your food stamps. So they're doing patently illegal things. They're not following up uh, on giving the job training. They're postponing the job training, running out the clock, and so that the poor uh, recipients have not been able to prove that they have found work or they have looked for work because the service has given them the runaround. It's, it's this horrible bureaucratic nightmare in which big middlemen, this was was called Maximus and ResCare, um, make money off this penurious uh, 
anti-poor people requirement, and the poor people are kicked off the rolls anyway. So, Corby, it's good news, because Marjorie and I are really uh, uh, care a lot about climate change, climate disruption, as Marjorie calls it. And we just read in Mother Jones, you don't have to be a vegan, thank God, to be a climate-friendly <laughs> Eater. No. So, what's the message? Flexitarian. Flexitarian. That's, that's what, what it we is. Can be. No, flexitarian is pretty extreme too, apparently. But what's the what's the deal? What's the instruction we take away from this, Corby Cummer? So, uh, first of all, I have to say, Tom Philpot in Mother Jones is one of the best writers about food, sustainability, climate change. I, I I rejoice whenever I see his byline. So, this is a piece talking about the two studies that we have been talking about. If you recall, Jim Browdy, the Eat Lancet study, I wasn't and then the Lancet study about climate change right after that, both this year, uh, 2019, saying that it's time to change your uh, meat-eating ways, but especially beef, uh, because the money graph in Tom Philpott's story reminds us that um, meat production, everything from cow burps, remember it's burps. It's I know, coming thank out the good. I, please. To fertilizer, okay. it's burps. Uh, generates about 14.5% of all greenhouse gases equal to the world's transportation system. And 12 times the amount of greenhouse gases per calorie as poultry, 56 times as much as fruit and vegetables, 100 times as much as rice. And America is the biggest beef-eating country of any. So it's time to just have the amount of one or two hamburgers a week. So are you okay with this, Marjorie? Flexitarian diet, 1.5 ounces of meat a day, about much. three hamburgers worth a week. And you'll help cut these emissions by 52%. Okay. Can you get behind that? I, well, I'm going to ask you a stupid question I don't I actually don't eat much red meat I just don't like it I never have but 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 um, it is, is I was confused about the status of chicken no here. beef is as he and just said pork. beef is far worse than chicken yeah okay so that was what I was confused about um, because of this chart you know they had everything lumped in on this chart you know they had uh, meat consumption poultry consumption chicken consumption so where is chicken on this flexitarian diet Chicken is terrible. It raises terrible humane issues and pollution issues, okay. especially humane issues. And you should be worried about it for another reason, because you should be worried every day, Marjorie. Okay, well, I am worried every day, Corby, as you well know. So the, the question is, can you have 1.6 things of chicken a week? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, beef yeah, is the worst Yeah, if you're thinking of the far. environment, it's beef. Yeah, really. okay. But, uh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's not a problem. But can I tell you, you know, if again, I don't mean to disparage whatever you're doing, Marjorie. I have totally converted to Soylent Squares myself. Oh, God. Now, about, I don't know, three it's or four. because you're an avatar. I am. About four or five years ago, three or four years ago, Sue O'Connell, our buddy, walks into the studio with this disgusting, <laughs> tan-looking thing and says, do you want to take a taste of this? And apparently it was Soylent the Liquid. Which, do you remember the taste of that? I do. It was disgusting. And you know something? Disgusting. Chelsea, our producer, said that the, it's, it's ironic, you know, the name, Soylent, because it's supposed yeah. to be that Soylent Green, that, yeah, which is I, that I movie is, which is yeah. about eating people or whatever it was. Well, it was. I mean, this is the grossest name for a product. They're never going to get anywhere continuing to well, call it Well, wait a second. But, but they, used, or not. they used to be into the notion that, that taste was not only irrelevant, but bad taste was okay. But the reason we brought it up is apparently they're moving from liquid to solid Soylent, and they're moving from tasteless and unappetizing to theoretically appetizing? Is that true? Um, well, you know, they're saying that they are now a complete nutrition platform you can enjoy any time of the day in multiple formats, which is enough to gag you if the idea of eating a Soylent Square isn't. You know what you could do? Uh, hey, Corby, before you continue, can you go back to the beginning and explain 
for the for the Silicon Valley types or wherever this started, yeah. what was the original notion behind Soylent? So the original notion was you're too busy to stop right. and have food that it takes too much time to chew. So this liquid diet will give you all the nutrients you need and fill you up. And a book that I have recently reviewed for a very large media outlet, and we will discuss it when the review comes out, has an account of eating Soylent for lunch every week. And it is really like the dystopian future of the movie that the name Soylent came uh. from because you lose all sensory clues. You lose all sense of the time of day. But it was adopted enthusiastically by Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley guys. Guys, the ones we were talking about last week, like Jack Dorsey, who give up food for the Doesn't entire Doesn't eat on weekend, the weekends, sick. Ridiculous five, two, they eat five days a week, only one meal, then nothing for two days. So these same bros were having just <laughs> Soylent for a while, and now they can have these bars because Soylent, but Soylent does have its fan base. It does. Apparently it's 65% men, 35% women. Um, sells are usually well in Grand Forks, North Dakota, the company said, offering no theory as to why. And you can get it in airports and car wash waiting rooms. Have you ever tasted this stuff? No. The, the idea seems like the best emetic possible. I, I can't imagine it, but you two have. I have read about people, they buy the powder and they, they mix it with water, although it's also oh, sold ready to God. drink. Um, and, and so a lot of the fans on Reddit, it has a, like 30,000 fans uh, on a Reddit um, uh, listserv, were saying, I just want more flavors in the packets. You know, why aren't they giving us more? Whereas Soylent itself has been so attacked that they say, oh, no, we don't, uh, we don't say it's, uh, you should give up food. Because the original founder was saying, I gave up food and I'm a better guy for it and I feel better. Now they're much more careful in their PR messages and say, no, no, have it as an adjunct to food. We don't say you should give up food. You know, before you go, you just reminded uh, me of the discussion we had with you last week about this loser, Jack Dorsey, this uh, the Twitter, the Twitter guy. guy. In every can way you, except uh, his billions. Can you imagine, it's Friday, you're finished work for the week. We finished pretty early, uh, two-ish on Friday, whatever time. Corby, you finish at the tough school of whatever. Can you imagine facing the weekend knowing you're not going to eat again till Monday? I mean, what is up with that? Oh, the idea of the perceived ecstasy that you will feel by the end of the weekend as you are depriving yourself of everything but oxygen and all nutrients, it's so dangerous. And the idea that these cultural icons promote this and then come into actual nutritionists who have to say, no, 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 this is dangerous for your body. Don't do it. Corby, good to talk to you as always. Corby, thank you very much. And I'll let you know how I make out in my new flexitarian diet. Um, yes, so you will. And I will be asking my colleagues at the Beard Awards this Friday oh. about uh, Gordon Ramsay. Oh, good luck. Oh we didn't know it was Friday. Friday. Thank you very much. Good oh, luck. Yes, We're rooting we, for you. Uh, absolutely and I'm rooting, rooting for, for you. for all my distinguished colleagues whose great work deserves to be celebrated. That is, that is sick. Corby Cummer, thank you very much. See you, Corby. Thank you. The food writer Corby Cummer joins us every week. He's an award-winning food writer. He's up for a James Beard Award this Friday. We hope he prevails. For his piece about Trump wines. That's right, which is a great piece about Trump wines, is that vineyard that the president has. Uh, Corby's also a senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. Up next, 
A new Frontline documentary looks at the debate over abortion and how it's playing out in Pennsylvania. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.